This is an AMI podcast. Good morning. It's Friday, August the 5th, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-audio and AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, the weekly news panel is back. Three topics on deck today. We discuss access to health care and reflect on the story of a British colonial. The rise in cyber crimes during the pandemic and its impact on young Canadians. And finally, we examine the current tensions between China and Taiwan. In the second hour of the show, we lighten things up when entertainment critic Michael McNeely shares his thoughts on the new HBO series Irma Vep. And Greg David gives you the scoop on some American television programming that are air, that's airing this fall. But let's get to our top story of the day. StatsCan is out with its June job numbers. We'll talk about it more with Mike next hour in the big business story of the day. But the top line item, the economy lost 31,000 jobs in June and the unemployment rate stayed the same at 4.9%. Let's get to some sound. From yesterday, where two federal cabinet ministers faced questions about Canada's decision to return six turbines to Germany with an exemption on Russian sanctions. Energy Minister Jonathan Wilkinson defended the decision. Uh, If we returned the turbine and gas flows actually returned to higher levels, that would be a very good outcome. But at the end of the day, if we return the turbines and that did not affect gas flows, it essentially is calling Putin's bluff. He cannot blame Canada. He cannot blame uh, Western Europe. Alexandra Kichi the head of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, says Canada could do more to sanction Russia. Is declare Russia a state sponsor of terrorism. That would take care of a lot of the issues that we are talking about. It would remove state immunity from Russia and it would make them the pariah uh, internationally that they deserve to be. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie also responded to the return of the Tom. Turbines saying it was about accommodating Germany's request and maintaining unity amongst allies. While we're talking about energy, the head of the United Nations says it's immoral that oil and gas companies are making record profits from the energy crisis. Antonio Gutierrez says big oil is exhibiting grotesque greed as the world's poorest struggle with soaring energy costs. The combined profits of the largest energy companies in the first quarter of this year are close to 100 billion US dollars. I urge all governments to tax these excessive profits and use the funds to support the most vulnerable people through these difficult times. Gutierrez also called on richer nations to conserve energy and scale up investment in green energy solutions. Let's come back to Canada, where Provincial Forest Minister Katrina Conroy says wildfire activity in BC is increasing and the long-range forecast says hot weather and low precipitation could cause more fires. She says residents must plan and prepare for wildfires and exercise caution in outdoor areas. Over the last seven days, we have had 154 new fire starts nearly three-quarters of which were caused by lightning. And to date, we've had 528 fires, which have burned about 22,000 hectares. But just by comparison, at the same time last year, we had more than 1,300 fires burning and nearly 25 times the hectares. Neil McLaughlin with the BC Wildfire Services gives more insight into how the fires may evolve over the next few weeks. And we're expecting above-average temperatures, uh, near-normal precipitation amounts through most of BC, 
in August and early September, and then a gradual return to seasonal temperatures by October. Um, elevated fire danger is expected to shift from the north uh, portions of the province down to the south. And we are anticipating a similar number of fire starts through August as we observed in the later part of July. BC Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth is urging residents to prepare evacuation packages in the event a wildfire and subsequent evacuation alerts or orders. And let's finish up with one more story. A UN-backed deal to export Ukrainian grain appears to be working. Donna Warden has the latest. Three more ships with grain have left ports in Ukraine and are headed to Turkey for inspection. The ships are loaded with more than 58,000 tons of corn. Ukraine is one of the world's main bread baskets, and the trapped grain has helped create a sharp rise in food prices and has been raising fears of a global hunger crisis. The first shipment of grain since the war in Ukraine left the country earlier this week. These shipments are still just a fraction of the 20 million tons of grain Ukraine says are trapped in the country's silos and ports. I'm Donna Porter. Let's get to our daily polls. At AMI-audio is where you find us on Twitter. Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. Too early for the weather. Too early for the weather music. we got to get to the polls first. Yesterday we asked you, at what point should airlines refund travelers for delays? 34% of you said over two hours. 45% of you said over five hours. 21% of you said only when it's cancelled. And 0% of you said never. So NOAA airline employees or NOAA airline executives, CEOs and COOs uh, jumping in on the uh, never option on the poll. Terry tweets in, don't know, but it can take for almost ever. And that isn't fast enough. And Studio Brock tweets in, if you miss a flight because of the airline slash airport, they should have to pay for your flight. At AMI-audio on Twitter, Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, or if social media is not your game, you can always send emails, feedback at AMI.ca, or give us phone calls. The original social media, 1-866-509-4545. Maybe the, the postage letter, the mailed letter was the original social media, but... Uh, Let's not have you spending money on stamps. one 509 Today's daily poll question has to do with social media, and we'll explore this a little bit in the news panel with Michelle and Joita a little bit later. Should there be a minimum age to join a social media platform? Yes or no? Of course, the context for that is a lot of young people seem to be targeted via social media for some online extortion scams. So how do we manage that? Should there be a minimum age? Yes or no? Dave Brown Consulting actually has an idea, but I'm going to save that for the news panel. So you got to stay tuned for about 20 minutes. So let's go first to Grace Scofield. Grace, what do you think? I think that absolutely there should be a minimum age for people on social media. I didn't have a phone until I was 14 or 15, so I stayed off most social medias until then. But I was on Facebook when I was like 10 to play the games and do the fun things. And I even still think that was way too early because now I look at posts on Facebook that come through my memories and I was like, nobody should have given the child a social media account like this. (laughs) What does this post mean? Um, I do think that there's dangers to being on social media too early. And, you know, there's so many, like, it's a vulnerable place to be, the internet, to put yourself out there, to make yourself available on the internet. It makes you vulnerable, and kids are already vulnerable. So if you can protect them as much as you can from all of those kind of worldly things on the internet, why wouldn't you? So, yeah, yeah, I think I agree. There should be uh, 
a minimum age for social media. No, I do agree there'd be some difficulty in trying to execute this, yes, right? There'd yes, be people, absolutely. There'd be people uh, banging the freedom the freedom bell, but there'd also be people like young people who would figure out how to get on social media, yeah. even if there was a minimum age. I actually wonder if this has to do a little bit as well of saying, how can we make the internet less anonymous, right? That, that over the last 20 years, the internet, although has become more real, there's still a ton of anonymity out there. I wonder yes, if there's something yeah. we can do on that front as well. More kinds of certifications, but then there's all kinds of privacy concerns that pop in on that one too. So I'm going to explore this a bit further with uh, Michelle and Joita in a couple of minutes, but let's give Mike Ross an opportunity to jump in on this one as well. Mike, should there be a minimum age for someone to join social media? Yeah, but I'm going to put the onus on the parents. Um, I know a cousin of mine, his kids both have, um, I believe it's on Facebook. It's a especially designed sort of kids Facebook account where he limits uh, who they can reach out to. You can't just reach out to them. You cannot friend request them. They send the requests and dad approves it. Um, so I like that. You know, like the, the, there you have parents who are aware of what their kids are doing on, uh, on social media and they get to interact with family and friends that are approved by mom and dad. And I think it's a smart, safe approach and it teaches them um, about social media because it's not going anywhere. And it's in many instances, it's a part of people's daily lives, whether it be their personal life or their business life. So I think the 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 earlier, <coughs> excuse me, the I'm earlier you sort of thank you, uh, you teach them about it, and the the more responsible a way you present it to them, then I think the smarter they are. The, the you know that that street smart. That you uh, that, that we had growing up, you need that on, on internet. You need that on social media. I don't. I don't, so. I don't know. As I was walking around the mean streets of NDG, that I had uh, too much street smarts going on. But I do agree with you, Mike. There's some instincts <laughs> to kick in there. Okay, I don't want to share too much of my take because I'm going to get to that with Michelle and Joita in a couple minutes. Mike, thank you. At AMI Audio is where you find us on Twitter. Accessible Media Inc. is where you track us down on Facebook. That's where you vote on the poll. But I love when I'm asking a social media question that maybe we should give you an opportunity not to answer on social media. Maybe you've deleted your accounts, but you still have email or you still have a telephone. Feedback at AMI.ca. Feedback at AMI.ca or 1-866-509-4545. 1-866-509-4545. And don't be limited to just our daily poll. You can uh, chime in on anything you hear or see on the show that uh, ruffles your feathers in a negative way or rubs your feathers in a positive way. Let's go back to Grace Scofield for the National Weather Update. Thanks, Dave. Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We're going to start off in St. John's, where it's sunny today with a high of 30 degrees. In Halifax, it's mainly sunny, with some increasing cloudiness late this morning and a risk of a thunderstorm late this afternoon, with a high of 30 degrees. In Montreal, it's mainly cloudy today, but that will clear up this afternoon, with a high of 28 degrees. In Ottawa, it's mainly cloudy, with a high of 28 degrees. In Toronto, it's cloudy today, that'll clear up late this morning, with a high of 28 degrees. In Thunder Bay, a mix of sun and cloud today with a high of 27 degrees. Over in Winnipeg, Manitoba, it's cloudy with a few showers beginning early this morning and ending near noon with a risk of a thunderstorm this morning as well and a high of 28 degrees. 
In Saskatoon, some increasing cloudiness today with a 40% chance of showers this afternoon and a high of 17 degrees. In Calgary, it's sunny, becoming a mix of sun and cloud this morning with a high of 17 degrees. In Edmonton, Alberta, some rain ending near noon, then a mix of sun and cloud into the afternoon with a high of 19 degrees. Up in Yellowknife, it's sunny today, becoming a mix of sun and cloud this morning with a high of 20 degrees. In Vancouver, BC, it's mainly sunny today with a high of 22 degrees. And in Victoria, BC, it's mainly sunny with a high of 24 degrees. And that was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Grace. We'll talk to you a little bit later in the show. But coming up next, let's get ready to news panel with Michelle and Joita as we discuss issues surrounding access to health care across the country with a story as a jumping off point out of B.C. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's a Friday edition of the show, which means we have the weekly news panel with Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Welcome back. And we will also say hello to Joita Gupta. Hello, Joita. Hey, Dave. Bonjour. Comment ça va? Wow. Bonjour. Comment ça va? Très bien. Merci. Uh, let's, let's try Michelle's audio connection one more time here. Hello, Michelle. Oh, somebody has Michelle on mute. No, salut, salut tout le monde. <laughs> oh, okay, there we go. Now we got Michelle. We got everybody. Everybody's okay, in the mix. Cool. That's good. We love it. All right, guys, let's jump right into our first topic, which is one that we've explored before and we're exploring again. Why? Because it's really important. Access to health care. A Victoria woman says her decision to place an ad in a newspaper to find a family doctor for her 82-year-old husband worked, but left her with deep concerns about BC's health system. Janet Mort says she reluctantly went public with her husband's health needs, but she had nowhere to turn after months of failing to find a doctor. She says several doctors responded to the newspaper ad, ready to take her husband on as a patient. Yes, and no one in government helped me with it. We did it ourselves with yeah. compassionate people who responded. I think if, if we had followed through, I think about five doctors in Victoria would have taken Michael, um, but we took the first one. BC Premier John Horgan says he should use a similar approach to getting federal health dollars. Uh, maybe I'll take out an ad in the paper. I don't know. Um, I suspect we're going to do that anyway. But uh, I've been pretty candid uh, with uh, the federal government about this, as have my colleagues. Again, uh, this isn't a, a question of partisanship. It's not a question of a region. It's the whole country. Janet Mort said she found that response from the Premier to be offensive. Michelle, where do you think we should start this conversation? Uh, it, that's a good question because it's a big one. Um, there are two strands here. There's the individual case, of course, and the premier's response. And I have to say that hearing the clips does convey a different sense of it than reading it in a, in a newspaper story. Uh, so it's, I'm glad you played the audio so we can have a more fulsome discussion about whether or not that kind of response to an individual situation is, is really appropriate. But it, this is a really, definitely a bigger issue. 
the fact is that BC and so many provinces now are grappling with big time health shortages and the situation like Janet Mort's is not uncommon. Uh, we've seen governments fall on this issue of addressing health, the healthcare system and issues there in Nova Scotia. The Liberal government fell to the Conservatives who are now trying to grapple with that particular issue. It's a really hot button issue in Ontario right now with a lot of hospital ER closures and staffing shortages and efforts now to try to accelerate getting more nurses into the system. You've got Alberta wrestling with similar issues. So this is a big one and it's hard to really know where to begin, but I think it's worth discussing these individual circumstances and these individual cases illustrate the issues that are being faced, which of course then leads us to issues of what to do about them mm -hmm. and whether or not taking it out in the paper is, obviously it's not going to be an appropriate government response, but it does raise a lot of questions about what can be done. So let, let's start with some of the specificities and then we can kick open the doors of Dave Juida and Michelle Consulting. Let's start with the premier's. Ooh. Let's start with the premier's response. I thought it was a little bit flippant, although uh, politically, yeah. sort of, it, it was it was really slick political messaging, but it seemed really insensitive and really flippant. Juita, what did you make of the premier's response? Yeah, I agree. I thought it was quite flippant as well. Now, bear in mind the premier isn't seeking re-election, so he can afford to, I think, be a little loose with his language, um, but. Certainly, it came off as tongue in cheek and insensitive to the plight of Janet Mort and her family, and 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 somehow oblivious to how many people in BC and, in fact, across Canada are struggling with the very same problem. So, uh, you know, his response could have been a little bit. Um, be he could have had a better response. I think the response indicates the deep uh, cynicism that has set in in conversations about healthcare where it's become a lot of political sniping and not very much by way of solutions. And I'm hoping <laughs> we can get away from some of that sniping where the federal government is blaming the province and the province is blaming the federal government. But when you think about the, the woman or the family who felt that they had no other resort but to expose their vulnerability in such a public way and put an ad in the paper, I mean, on the one hand, it was really intelligent. Uh, it was a great PR move, if you want to look at it that way, but it's also very disappointing and discouraging that she had to go that route. I think a little more sensitivity from the premier, a little more humility, a little more, um, a, a slightly more apologetic response might have resonated better with me. Uh, and I dare say it would have resonated better with Janet Mort. Yeah. So Ju Michelle, Juita just pushed the ball forward a little bit there. So I'll ask you a two-pronger what did you make of the premier's response? And B, what do you make of the utilization of this tactic of taking out newspaper ads, trying to seek out uh, help? I mean, I would, say even, I would say even going beyond newspaper ads, people using GoFundMe campaigns, social media campaigns, the sort of general way in which people are putting out cries for help. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would agree with both of you that that response was, was kind of jarring to me, especially, as I said earlier, hearing it out loud. Uh, you got one sense of how flip it could be when you read it in print. Hearing it out loud it conveys an even more strong sense of that message. So I would agree with you. And I was a bit surprised to have that coming from a premier who had very public health battles himself. He's battled with cancer. In fact, he cited medical reasons as a reason not to seek re-election. Uh, so the, the, the tone, perhaps he didn't mean it that way, but I, I would share everyone else's assessment with how that came off. And I don't blame Janet Mort for being upset by having that sort of parlayed into a sound clip. Because yes, you're right. This kind of public messaging I think speaks to how deep this crisis is. Uh, this was clearly not a grandstanding effort. The very fact that they had multiple options of doctors coming forward and they just took the first one. This is clearly a sign of the, the fact that they were desperate for some medical support. 
any kind of public outreach like that is very risky. Uh, the idea of airing my health anywhere public is the stuff of my nightmares personally. So it's profoundly brave and, and hard for people to make that kind of step. And it speaks to how desperate people really are, uh, even in more privileged circles. Because I think it's worth pointing out the fact that an ad in the paper specifically, I think, can only really be placed by someone with the means and resources to do that and the connections to make it happen. Uh, social media or a GoFundMe platform perhaps is a little more uh, democratic in that sense. But when these kinds of healthcare shortages and doctor shortfalls and whatnot are, are reaching all echelons of society, I think it speaks to the scope and the severity of the problem. Yeah. In terms of the tactic being utilized, when you're in these types of crises situations, you do what you have to do, right? The desperation will make you do that. And like that, as you point out, is sort of the larger issue here that we shouldn't be having people in these senses of desperation having to do that. But Michelle, I am glad you mentioned the notion of what it would cost or what it would take to do that full page ad in a newspaper in a notable publication where other journalists are now going to read this and turn this into a news story, as opposed to sometimes the ways things can get lost in the algorithm on a Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Reddit, or other forms of a GoFundMe post. So I think there is something to identify there in regards to the ability to leverage old school linear media as part of that in a way that may reach more eyes and ears in a more substantive, concrete way. So I think that's really well put. Joita, what do you make of the tactic? It's a good tactic. Um, I don't know if either of you has ever done uh, deputation training. Um, So back in the day, I was involved with a transit group. um, And they said, you know, if you go to city council, you could go and blurt out a bunch of stats and try to convince city councillors that way. But you might want to bring in the personal anecdotes and the stories. You know, I um, remember this is really compelling story out of Toronto where um, that clip still lives on YouTube, where a woman says that she uh, does not have the means to afford transit, uh, so she has to walk everywhere. And she said, it takes me two hours to walk, you know, to work and back. And I have blisters on my feet. Uh, why am I bringing up this unrelated example? Because uh, to quote the feminist move from, to borrow from the second wave feminist movement, the personal is political. And often telling these stories in deeply meaningful and personal ways can be extremely powerful in getting the message across. So while it is, uh, while the tactic runs the risk of exposure, uh, and while it runs the risk of even backlash in some instances, uh, it is nevertheless a very useful strategy from the perspective of anyone who is trying to move the needle on a social issue or a point of crises. And let's face it, when it comes to the shortages in our healthcare system, I just heard a commentator say it this morning, and I don't think they'd be the first nor the last to say it, that our healthcare system and some of the shortfalls are really in, we're, we're in a moment of crisis. The one other thing that was really interesting about this is how after the ad came out, five family doctors stepped up to offer their services to Mm -hmm. Michael Moore. And I wanted to just uh, spend a minute with that because I think part of the issue isn't just the shortage, but I think part of the problem might also be uh, in how referrals get made. So Mm. at least in Ontario, if you need a lawyer, you can call the Law Society of Ontario, the Law Referral Service, um, and they will refer you to a lawyer. Whether you end up working with a lawyer is besides the point, but there is a mechanism to get a referral to a lawyer. You don't really have, to the best of my knowledge, a similar referral process for family doctors. So they are maybe, you know, there's a mismatch there between people who need family physicians and family physicians 
with openings for new patients who are not being put in touch with one another. So it's not the the solution or the silver bullet, but I think there is an interesting conversation about whether we need some uh, bureaucratic or administrative solutions to try and bring people together, family physicians and people who need referrals in order to try and address some of these gaps in the system. Yeah, it's it's so interesting that sometimes dumb luck ends up being the thing that allows you to have proper access to health care. It, it, it's preposterous sometimes that just uh, happen, happening to email a clinic just after they open or when a new doctor starts in a position that, oh, okay, there you go. You, you, like, you cracked the magic code that you emailed them on the right day at the right time to be able to get access to something that you needed. So let's talk about solutions because certainly dollars are the things that the premiers were banging on about a couple of weeks ago. And you heard Premier John Horgan say it again this week. It's about federal dollars, federal dollars, federal dollars. But like we talked about a couple of weeks ago on this panel, the solution needs to be more about than just throwing money at the problem, right? That, that we're talking about staffing shortages. Dollars don't directly solve a staffing shortage training does having enough people does like the notion of the hallway medicine yes building new hospitals matter but what about triage systems or clinic systems right what are the solutions here to improve access to healthcare? Juita just identified one can we have some kind of proper registry that people can go through referral services to actually get to the things they need without having to do a guess and test model but michelle before i start stealing all the ideas and talking about all the ideas what are some ideas that you have in mind I have to say, I don't feel like I've deserved my promotion to partner in Dave Brown Consulting uh, because ideas are not my forte on this file (laughs) in particular uh, because it's such a complex issue. And it's interesting to watch all the different provinces grappling with various aspects of it. But there are so many pieces to the puzzle that need to be considered. And and I think a big, big part of this issue is support and retention of staff. Uh, We are now talking about a system that's been heavily taxed in every sense, by the COVID-19 pandemic, everyone is burned out. They've been working in some cases without adequate compensation, and that's a big one. A lot of people are saying, you know what, I'm done. I I don't want to work in these conditions for this kind of money, and they're leaving the system. So retaining talent is a big, big problem and contributing to those staff shortages. And now we're seeing provinces talking about solutions like uh, adjusting some of the criteria, fast-tracking people, getting qualified to enter the profession, uh, recognition of foreign credentials, all of which I think have some some place in this system Uh, but there needs to be a look back at those who were already there as well not just those who might enter the system in the future and I think uh, addressing the compensation issue does come back to money to some degree and I think that is an important piece of the puzzle although uh, as you said, Dave, this is not just a federal matter and federal dollars are not going to be the only thing that can uh, even attempt to tackle this. Yeah, part of this to me is about policy shifts. And we yeah. talked about this a couple of years ago when there were certain foreign medical students from Saudi Arabia who were being uh, who were being asked to leave due to some weapons contracting. I, I don't want to get into all this, all this like minutia of that deal, but a lot of med schools were saying, oh, no, we need these students from Saudi Arabia to fill our ranks. And then people in the profession were saying, and we need them to come fill up these positions. In the, in the entry level for our hospitals and for our healthcare system. And my position then is the position that I hold now. We are not letting enough people into our med schools. We've made it so prestigious to get into med school that we're not training enough doctors. We just aren't. The fact is when somebody starts medical school, it doesn't matter if they fail out in the first year. That's fine. We need a critical mass of people working as doctors. We need critical masses of people working as nurses. We need administrators. We need specialists. We need radiologists. We need 
everybody across the board to be filling up this system. The population of Canada has grown by 6 million in the last 20 years. And I assure you, proportionally, our system has not grown in terms of frontline workers. Oh, I bet you there have been plenty of bureaucratic jobs that have been made, but not enough actual workers. We need to change the way we're educating and training people. And Michelle, I like that you identified what came out in Ontario yesterday, which said, hey, if somebody did this internationally in a different place and they're an immigrant or a refugee, let's fix the certification process. I don't know about the two-week timeline that uh, the ministry actually gave uh, yeah. gave the profession to figure that out. But again, that's politicians being politicians. We'll put that aside. The fact is, we do not have enough training grounds. We are not training enough people. And it's as simple as that. Joita, what do you think? Okay, Dave, how do you really feel, though? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, how do I no, really I feel? I'm sweating right now. <laughs> wow. Um, I, th- I think Dave has really summed up a lot of what I was going to say. And I think uh, uh, there's a few things here. If one is to be charitable, a lot of this is the aftermath of the pandemic. And as I said, if you're feeling charitable, you can see we maybe didn't see the pandemic coming. And we didn't realize it was going to be as much of a problem or put as much of a strain on the system as it clearly has. But to be perfectly honest, these problems predate the pandemic. And often we're dealing with the aftermath of retirement. So the question that I have is why were people not planning for retirements? We talked about family doctors a few weeks ago on the program. And I remember saying, I remember that it came up that uh, with family physicians uh, retiring, they just didn't have enough medical students to fill the gap. Now, why was that not anticipated for? Why was that not planned for? In that sense, I sort of echo Dave's remarks about needing to improve training and recruitment. Now, if you're having problems with finding a family doctor in Toronto or Victoria, if you're Janet Mort, then think about being in a rural community or an indigenous community or any sort of northern or remote community in Canada where those problems go up exponentially. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's been shown to work, and this speaks to your point about recruitment, Dave, is targeting those remote communities because it's been found that if you target people who live in those communities and provide incentives for those folks to go to medical school, the research shows that they are more likely than not to go back to their home communities and practice. And I think that's where we really need to be doing some sensible thinking about how we recruit, who we recruit, and in what way we recruit. You know, you could think about loan forgiveness. So um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think medicine is one of those uh, programs of study in Ontario anyway that is deregulated, so you could end up in a lot of debt. Mm -hmm. So maybe finding ways to reduce the cost of tuition or bringing in more financial aid, providing financial aid to uh, family physicians, because we were talking specifically about family physicians, uh, providing them with financial aid to actually help them set up businesses. Uh, Many are intimidated by starting a small business or providing some financial aid and assistance to do that might be really beneficial. And then, of course, a really useful point about foreign credentials. Uh, We shouldn't gloss over that because we often have this really mortifying scenario where you've got trained physicians. You were talking about specialists, specialists from other countries, and they end up driving taxi cabs because we don't have a good system to bring their credentials up to speed. I mean, come on, a spleen is a spleen is a spleen, no matter where you get trained in the world. So I think a little more attention paid to bringing uh, to ensuring that for foreign uh, that that medical students with foreign credentials are able to quickly and effectively practice across the, the country will help to alleviate those burdens um, I was just in uh, in France but and I couldn't help noticing the number of family doctor offices and this is just anecdotal but you know there I am and the place is crowded with family doctors and psychotherapists and if, when I went back and looked at home, when I came home and I did the research, the EU plan for the retirement of family physicians. In fact, 
going back from 2008 to present, the number of family physicians and, and doctors, in fact, has gone up by 15% vis-a-vis the general population. So wow. planning works. And that's what I'm trying to say. I think this is, to an extent, a mess entirely of our own making, even when you factor out the pandemic, which, again, to be charitable, maybe you just didn't see coming. Yeah, we'll, 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 give, it, we'll give people a, a, a pass on the pandemic in a sense, right? Even though people had warned us about that one. But they definitely, as Joey had pointed out, warned us about the demographic bomb that was coming in regards to aging population. And it seems like nobody, everybody twiddled their thumbs for like two decades and just thought, ah, yeah, the system will work itself out. Yeah, I guess what it didn't. Uh, Michelle, thank you for bringing this topic to us. I bet you we will revisit it again, maybe even as early as next week. So thank you for bringing it to the table. <laughs> Thanks for hashing it out. Coming up next, we explore the rise in cyber crimes during the pandemic and the impact that it's having on young Canadians. This is the Now News Panel on AMI. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Drew Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Let's get into our next topic. Data released by Statistics Canada shows online crimes swelled during the pandemic. That includes a 300% increase in online extortion. Stephen Stauer, the director of the national tip line, cybertip.ca, says they are seeing 300 online extortion cases a month, most targeting kids. There are a lot out there who feel ashamed by what's happened. Um, They worry about being blamed. Um, You know, in in some cases, kids are looking at it from the perspective of, well, I've shared this image, so it's now my fault. Canadian Centre for Child Protection Executive Director Leanna McDonald thinks the government needs to impose more guardrails around technology companies. And I think that's where I want to start, guys, in regards to the guardrails. Because when an advocate says, hey, we need more guardrails, to your mind, what do those guardrails look like? Michelle, what do you think could realistically be put in place? Wow. Um, Big question and a fraught one. And again, we're seeing how fraught it is in a different but related arena of government policy right now. We've talked a little bit on this panel about the federal government's efforts to get an online hate bill going. And that has been a very difficult effort. One one died, in fact, before the election. Now there's a fresh bill that's coming into play that they're hoping to get passed. This is a very thorny and difficult issue to navigate, and sextortion, of course, is in a whole other corner that has yet to be explored and doesn't necessarily fall under the guise of online hate, although one could argue that it does. Um, in terms of guardrails, this is really tricky because it, you're getting into issues of, of how you regulate social medias, what their, what their policies are like, how they control their content, if they can control their content. So I don't know, to be honest with you, uh, in terms of ideas, this is always one that's left me scratching my head a little bit, but I do think it also involves discussion about mental health supports for youth. I don't think we can possibly have this discussion without just talking about what kind of resources excuse me, are available to people who are facing situations like this. And we know that mental health supports are lacking for youth in general, and perhaps there needs to be some more specialized attention in this growing area now. Yeah, there's been a lot of research about the impact of social media on mental health of young people specifically, but just mental mm-hmm. health of people in general. Um, I, I, when I'm talking about guardrails, I do think that something along the lines of saying limiting the amount of direct messaging that somebody can do, especially if they're under the age of 18, 
seen might be good. But again, you have to be very careful with this stuff because there are a lot of young people in a lot of places that are using social media to very healthily get away from unhealthy environments and becoming who they are as individuals by utilizing social media. But I do think when you start talking about sextortion, None of that can really be done without access to direct messaging or private messaging. And I wonder if maybe that's where some of the guardrails might start to come up. But again, this, this can't necessarily be a wide swath, smack it with a frying pan issue. A lot of it needs to be really targeted. But Joita, what do you make of, of the possibility of some guardrails? Are there, are there any guardrails that come to mind for you? Well, I I struggle with the nuance inherent in this conversation and also with my own deficiencies. I'm not a, I don't have a lot of technological know-how. I will readily admit that I'm a complete Luddite, uh, which I think somewhat hampers my ability to make constructive remarks. With that said, I think some degree of age verification and ID verification outside of what we normally do right now would not go amiss. Uh, for example, on a lot of websites, you're asked to check a box. Um, I am, I, I, I'm, you know, where you verify that you're over the age of 18, for example. I think we need to do a little bit better than that um, because, you know, there's no, there's no, there's no way to actually uh, ascertain whether the person who checked the box and verified that they're over the age of 18, for example, is actually over the age of 18. But beyond that, I think um, we we need to find figure out that these uh, sextortion campaigns and other scams have real-world consequences. And so I just want to circle back to my point about ID verification. We have to find ways to figure out who these uh, people are, the extortionists in particular, who they are in real life, and that can become very tricky. Um, and so finding ways to get people to legitimately verify with ID would be one of the guardrails um, that I would like to see put in place. As to how you actually do that um, is beyond my pay grade. But I think one of the problems is that people are, are able to act anonymously and get away with acting anonymously and leave young people vulnerable. One of the reasons that this has gone up, uh, that this problem has shot up is largely because of the pandemic where kids have been isolated at home and uh, there's been a spike in online activity. And so I will echo Michelle's point about needing more mental health support. But I think um, it's really about cracking down on platforms and holding their feet to the fire and saying, you need to monitor your direct messaging. You need to monitor any kind of correspondence and have those red flags go up when it seems like a young and vulnerable person might be subject to harassment or might be subject to her, uh, to extortion. And that's one of the ways in which you can actually impose a strict and stringent guardrail yeah, because you, it's hard to get people to verify who they are on the internet, but you can certainly hold the platforms and companies accountable and get them to monitor conversations, to, to, to get to these problems before they snowball out of control. Joita, I'm but I wonder if that's, uh, Michelle, I think you and I are going to ask the same question, so go ahead. No, go, go, on, go on, Dave. No, please. All right. I just, I, I, I wonder how feasible that would really be in terms of monitoring. The, the blowback would be oh, uh, tremendous. Uh, unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely it would. I, I just don't know how if realistically that would work, even though I think it could, I think it's a sound idea in many senses and certainly one that would, would help. It would, I think it would be really effective. Perhaps the solution would be to silo things a little bit. And, and have more monitoring in place for those who do disclose an age of, of 18 or lower, 16 or lower, whatever they decide it's going to be. But there are so many logistics. So this is where I, I wish we could have someone from some of these platforms who could talk about what is realistically and technologically possible. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, so, so because we can't necessarily get into the algorithms and the codes, it's out. It's outside of our pay grade. I want to finish up on a blues oh, yeah. on a blue sky thought. And Joita, you mentioned anonymity. There, have we yeah. reached a point? where anonymity should no longer be acceptable on the internet because I'm not even talking about necessarily bots. I'm talking about burner accounts. I don't know about you guys, but I got a couple burner accounts for when I need to uh, monitor some uh, corners of the web that uh, maybe that Dave Brown's name shouldn't be attached to for the sake <laughs> of privacy concerns. I think that maybe we've reached the point, and, and this may be going along with what Joita was saying in regards to the way in which some of these messages just maybe monitored has it become too easy i suppose it's always been easy to be anonymous on the internet but have we reached that critical point where anonymity is no longer acceptable on the internet what do you think michelle i think that's an interesting question and i i would not personally lose a lot of sleep if anonymity were were to become unacceptable and i think we have seen some steps in that direction, not necessarily from the social media platforms, but it's something as basic as commenting platforms mm-hmm, on news sites, mm-hmm. right? Like we're seeing this now when people are saying you're not allowed to call yourself, you know, Yogi 25 you have to register with a proper name. Um, if more steps like that were to be taken, I don't think it would be a bad thing at all. I just don't know if it's actually going to happen. I guess I have a deep and broad streak of cynicism as to how much the world at large and the internet, some of the internet communities in particular would undercut any efforts that are being made to tackle this issue. I will say though, that when anonymity is dropped, there can be some major real consequences. I just want to very quickly plug the work of some of my colleagues in Vancouver who are covering currently the trial of Aidan Coban, who was charged in the sextortion of Amanda Todd, as who, as we know, killed herself because of what was happening. And uh, this is going to be a, ca- a case that will be resolved in the coming days, so stay tuned. Juita, into the, uh, blue, into the blue sky we go in regards to anonymity. What do you make of the idea that perhaps the internet has reached a point where we need to begin eliminating anonymity? Well, on the face of it, it seems like a good idea. Um, There's certainly an argument to be made for more transparency on the Internet, and a number of platforms have already taken steps in that direction. Uh, Facebook has had a long-standing policy uh, to try and root out these anonymous accounts. Whether they're actually successful in doing so is a whole other can of worms. Uh, Twitter has been called on to root out some of those dark corners and anonymous accounts um, because anonymity is one of those weird things where the more anonymously you can act, as I said a few minutes ago, the more likely you are to perpetuate behaviors that are harassing or discriminatory. On the other hand, take this scenario, you're a young uh, person who is questioning their sexuality and you live in a really small town where everybody knows everybody else and you rely on the anonymity of the internet to explore your sexuality safely maybe on an online um, you know discussion group or a facebook group so and so, so there are times when anonymity makes sense Um, And I think it's going to be a tricky one. It's not one of those uh, questions that yields a simple yes or no answer. Um, I think it it requires some amount of nuanced thinking. And the nuance is really where I struggle in in having this conversation with you. But as I, again, said a few minutes ago, and I think others have have made the point as well, even if we were to go with the argument that we should make the, the Internet a less anonymous place, how do you actually enforce that? I mean, like I said, Facebook has had this policy on the books for a really long time where you're not supposed to have fake names and your account should bear your first name and your last name. 
but I think we all know at least that one person who still uses a fake name on Facebook and, you know, their account is is not going to be Dave Brown or Michelle McQuig. It'll be a, a completely different name. And that's, you know, they, they prefer that for professional and privacy reasons. So or, enforcement. Or sometimes it's a real name. It's your real name. It's just not one that's easily identifiable. If you mm. saw Michelle Ann on Facebook, that could be me. It also could be how many other people? Yeah. And it would, yeah. I wouldn't be flouting any conventions by using that it would just be me getting my last name off out of out of the mix yeah i i still i i don't know why i keep coming back to this notion of messaging and private messaging and direct messaging but i wonder if the ability to surf anonymously should remain but the ability to message should be verifiable i i again i, I think that again there's going to be workarounds people are going to figure out a million different ways to do this but i i think that at a certain point if you make it harder and harder and harder to be able to get people to be having those those private interactions that are dangerous at least you're keeping things in public where i'm a little more comfortable with some of those guardrails and red flags coming up as opposed to everybody being able to anybody in the Facebook building in uh, in wherever they are in California being able to uh, look at all my stuff. You know, I, I just I, I again because I, I agree with Joanna. There's nuance here. There's a middle ground here that goes well beyond simply saying anonymity is bad. But if if we're talking about like online crime increasing by hundreds of percent then we have to be thinking about solutions here and, and sometimes either that's either that's not waving the privacy flag when we need to or whether that's limiting the age of someone being being on social media or actually cracking down on the nefarious individuals like that would be good too guys thank you for this let's get out of here because we have one more topic to go coming up next we'll talk about the escalating tensions between china and taiwan after a visit by u.s house speaker nancy pelosi this is now with dave brown on ami Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Judah Gupta and Michelle McQuig. We've got one more topic on deck. China has begun live-fire military drills in the waters around Taiwan. Normally, I would do a big, long setup, but instead, let's hear from Charles de Ledesma of the Associated Press. China says it has conducted precision missile strikes in the Taiwan Strait as part of military exercises by its Navy, Air Force and other departments in six zones surrounding the island. The drills have been prompted by a visit to the island by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi this week. The intentions to advertise China's threat to attack the self-governing island republic in response to moves to solidify its de facto independence from Chinese rule. State media says the exercises are joint operations focused on blockade, sea target assault, strike on ground targets and airspace control. I'm Charles Dilatesma. And those drills continue today and China also announced a international sanction on U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi as well. Joita, this topic uh, made some waves with you. We've only got about five minutes here, but what do you think we should explore in this issue? I think there is a lot to explore in this issue. One of the things that has become evident to me uh, in in looking at the Ukraine conflict is that things that seem to happen far away from us, in fact, have implications much closer to home. And I think with the Nancy Pelosi's visit, uh, it's interesting because this is the first time in almost 30 years that someone with her rank has 
visited Taiwan. And the U.S. has had a really sort of ambiguous relationship when it's come to Taiwan. On the one hand, they have uh, provided military equipment and um, been a supporter of Taiwan. But at the same time, their official position has been to maintain a degree of, of distance. You could call a strategic ambiguity. So they're trying, they have so far tried to keep both sides happy. And yet it's hard to think uh, of a scenario where uh, Joe Biden wasn't aware uh, that this visit was going to take place. Although, of course, the White House has subsequently come out and said that it was a not an official visit. They had no intention of changing the status quo. And yet it is a very volatile part of the world. And I think there are questions looming large about what happens next. Do we, uh, you know, is this going to lead to an invasion? Is this something that it might eventually lead to peaceful reunification? What actually happens down the road, especially with China so willing to flex its muscles with these military exercises that are now in their second or third day? It's worth noting that pretty much once a month, China engages in large-scale military drills near Taiwan. Uh, typically, when Craig Oliver and I would prepare for our Wednesday segments, oftentimes we'd talk about, are we going to discuss China and Taiwan this week because of these military drills? So there's a certain fervor occurring this week related to the Pelosi visit, but these are not uncommon drills. Perhaps the scale of the drills this week matter, but I do think there's a certain uh, clutching of pearls this week that, that only relates to the U.S political side of this. This is a story that that just exists and has existed for decades. Michelle, any observations about the story? Yeah, I, it's similar to yours, in fact, in that a lot of the reaction has been focused on the U.S. and, you know, was Nancy Pelosi wise to make this visit? Did the U.S. government do the right thing? Blah, 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 blah. But as you said, this is a long-standing conflict with a lot of history and these military exercises are not that different. And I think what's worth noting here is that China knows the world is watching. So it's now conducting similar behavior that it's been performing in the past, but in front of a much broader audience. And we'd be crazy to think that the government of China does not know this and is not fully aware of this. And hasn't been keeping an eye on the situation in Russia. Uh, because there are some similar dynamics at play here. A smaller country... Uh, being what they would describe as threatened by a much larger power that the rest of the Western world is trying to tiptoe around in a lot of cases and is trying to forge alliances within different senses. And in many in many ways, China could be seen as even more powerful than Russia in that respect. So it's, I, I feel like the focus is a bit perplexing in light of the bigger picture. Yeah, uh, it's, it's not just politics too, it's entertainment. Uh, Disney had a bunch of movies pulled out of mainland China because one of their actors acknowledged the existence of Taiwan. So there's a certain mm-hmm. petulance that mm-hmm. exists with the Chinese government here that they don't want the rest of the world to acknowledge Taiwan. They want them to think of them as an island that only China, only China thinks about. So this, again, seems like an extension of that. So although it's the focus this week, this is something that has existed for a long, long time mm-hmm. and bubbles up to the surface every now and then. Uh, Joita, we've only got two minutes here, but you did hear Michelle mention the way in which uh, Russia and Ukraine influences, and you mentioned that in your answer as well. How do you think that is framing the conversation that we're having, particularly this week? Well, I think uh, there's a couple of ways in which the conversation is being framed. The first thing to note is just the Western support for Ukraine has been tremendous, and I think China is is looking at that, and um, it will, I think, cause the government of, of mainland China to take to pause and consider uh, how much they're willing to actually escalate. Now, mind you, um, at least as you think about 
China's military capacity. I don't think they're quite where they want to be, but in 10 to 15 years, they may not care. They may have a far more, they might, their naval, naval capacity might be far more well-developed and they may be willing to in, invade in, in 10 to 15 years. Or, you know, even to be frank with you, um, their, Taiwan is made up of a number of small islands. If they're really upset about this, um, this U.S., Nancy Pelosi's visit, some people have speculated that they might try to snatch a couple of those smaller islands but the fact of the matter is, um, I think this whole conflict in Ukraine has underscored that there is a lot of Western support for these the smaller country in in the whole situation, and I think China is going to take take heed and, and sort of look at that. Uh, besides which, I think China is also so Russia is also dealing with the economic fallout of that uh, of of sanctions, um, and again, that's going to be something that China is going to look at moving forward. Yeah, certainly, for sure. Guys, we are flat out of time. Joita, thank you for bringing this topic to us today. We appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Thank you, you too. And Michelle, you enjoy your weekend as well. We'll talk to you on Monday morning. Take care, everybody. That is Joita Gupta, host of The Pulse on AMI-audio, and Michelle McQuig, the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up after the break, Mike Ross will be here with a trifecta of roles, regional news update, big business story of the day, and we'll engage in a bit of a sports chat. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-audio, AMI-tv, AMI.ca, and the mighty AMI-audio podcast network. It's Friday, August the 5th, 2022. It's Friday, Friday, Friday. Coming up in the second hour of the show, entertainment critic Michael McNeely will review the HBO series Irma Vep. And Greg David will give you the scoop on some American television programs that are coming your way this fall. Coming your way right now is Mike Ross with the regional news updates. Thank you very much, Dave. And if uh, the control room could just kill the feed to my uh, headphones, oh, that'd be great. Everybody's chatting Thank with Mike. Everybody much. wants to talk to Mike. I, I, I got to hear everybody, Dave. You know me. <laughs> I got to have my fingers in every pie. Uh, we're going to begin in British Columbia. And all residents of Olala have been ordered to evacuate their homes due to the massive Caramels Creek wildfire in the Penticton area. Tim Roberts, the Olala's area's regional director, says residents are concerned about their paths to safety as the fire continues to evolve. More than 300 properties had previously been evacuated as the wildfire consumed more than 42 square kilometers of rugged terrain in the Penticton area. The BC Wildfire Service says sustained wildfire activity is expected this month and into September, especially in southern regions, as the long-range forecast is calling for hot and dry weather. To the prairies, the suspended leader of the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs is to face a non-confidence vote today in Winnipeg. In June, the organization said an independent investigation had found that Arlen Dumas engaged in workplace sexual harassment. He has disputed the findings and has not been charged in an ongoing Winnipeg police investigation. Dumas is to speak to the chiefs in a closed-door meeting before that vote, and that will determine if he will be removed from the role of Grand Chief. The Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs represents 62 First Nations, accounting for more than 151,000 people. Harvest is underway in some parts of Saskatchewan. The latest provincial crop report says some farmers in the west, central and southwest regions are in their fields where crops are further ahead in development. 
The report says in eastern regions, the start of harvest is at least 7 to 10 days away. Many pastures have recovered from last year's drought after receiving much more rain than last year, though not so in some parts of the west. To Ontario, nursing groups and critics say the province's directives to register internationally trained nurses more quickly in Ontario falls short of the Premier's promise to do everything in his power to address an emergency room staffing crisis. Health Minister Sylvia Jones has sent directives to the College of Nurses of Ontario and the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario, urging them to make every effort to register those nurses and doctors as fast as possible so that they can practice in the province. NDP Deputy Leader Dolly Begum says the directives are weak and need to include action. Doris Grinspun, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, says she's delighted a directive has been issued, but that Bill 124 still needs to go. And in Atlantic Canada, forest fires are still wreaking havoc among or along a remote highway in central Newfoundland. Officials described the fires near the Bay Despair Highway yesterday as very active and asked those with cabinets in the area, or cabins rather, in the area to leave. The highway is the only road connecting towns along Newfoundland's Conagra Peninsula with the rest of the province. With intermittent highway closures ongoing, officials are asking anyone stranded and unable to make medical appointments to call the regional health authority and cancel. And finally, Halifax Mayor Mike Savage says it could be necessary to use police to clear homeless people from a tent encampment in a city park because extensive alternative efforts have not worked. Last month, the city cited health and safety concerns, including a rat infestation, as it told people living in Mir Park, Mahar Park rather, they had to leave by July 17th so work could begin to clean up the park. During a special meeting earlier this month or this week, municipal councillors endorsed a plan allowing the city to call on Halifax Regional Police to remove those still living in the park after the deadline for leaving had passed. In June, the city approved four parks where up to 32 people without homes can set up tents and receive services that include bathrooms, but Mahar Park near the city's downtown was not on the list. And those are your top regional headlines going coast to coast across the country. Thank you very much, Mike. Stay right there, though, because you're also going to tell us what's going on in the world of money with the big business story of the day. So, Mike, I shared the top line numbers right off the top of the show. Statistics Canada out with their June job numbers. Yeah, the unemployment rate, according to Stats Canada, was 4.9% in July, remaining unchanged from the historic low that uh, was reached in June. They say that the uh, economy lost 31,000 jobs. That marks the second consecutive month of job losses. And they say that the number of public sector employees fell while the number of self-employed workers went up. Now, the market, the labor market in Canada, they say, is still tight with about one million job vacancies across the country. But the unemployment rate is the lowest on record with data going back to 1976. And StatsCan says that despite that labor shortage, there's no evidence of a rise in the proportion of people leaving or switching jobs. Here's the other good news, Dave. The pace of wage growth also had steady, held steady rather since June with hourly 
rate wages rising 5.2% year over year. So that's a trend that we've been seeing happen more and more as people try to attract workers to their businesses. They're offering higher hourly wages in order to get them in. And that has continued to grow at a 5.2% clip. Yeah, a million job openings across the country. It's kind of, a, it's, it's actually a staggering number when you think about it. When you think about the population of the country, you're right, Dave, that uh, it's just absolutely jaw-dropping. And so it's hard to to really sort of get a sense of how you as an individual may be affected by that. Because once you start digging into the jobs (laughs) that are out there. Where are they and what are are they? And exactly. And are you trained for those jobs? Mm -hmm. And uh, it can be a little bit disheartening, uh, you know, diving into some of those employment sites. But the fact is there may be something out there for you, whether or not you can stay put where you are and uh, get that job is something that people (laughs) are going to have to look at one-on-one it might be time for some folks to update the linkedin the linkedin profile just to see yeah. just to see what's out there do a little dabble mike thank you for this so now we've worn two hats in the segment let's put on hat number three it's the sports chat For folks who stayed up late last night, Mike, Jonathan Uberdo, recently acquired by the Calgary Flames. Well, he he, uh, signed himself a big money extension. Yeah, he sure did. And so he came over in the trade for Matthew Kachuk with the Florida Panthers. Now, the big story at the time was, okay, so Calgary gets themselves Uberdo. They get themselves Mackenzie Weger. But... These are guys who had one year left on their deals. So were they going to be trade bait for Calgary come next year's trade deadline? Or were they going to be able to convince them? Or or were the players themselves going to be able to convince Calgary to keep them around? Mm-hmm. Well, Jonathan Huberdeau had dinner in Montreal last week with Brad Treliving. And there was a tweet I read this morning from uh, Arpan Basu who said, uh, Brad Treliving clearly had the most successful dinner meeting in the history of Montreal uh, <laughs> when uh, when he, he he had dinner with uh, Jonathan Huberto. Eight years, $84 million, an average annual uh, value, the AAV of $10.5 million. What's really interesting, though, is, again, when you break down this contract year by year, it's almost it's so heavily loaded with signing bonuses versus the actual salary that uh, the player earns and a lot of teams um they look at that as a way of of almost not necessarily circumventing the salary cap but making it work in 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 their advantage Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. and when they've got to spend that money and and how they spend their money changing a player's trade value as well because although the the average annual value may remain the same the actual amount of money that moves changes in that case as well so it might be actually more affordable for a new team to acquire a player so yeah it's interesting to see them use those those accounting machinations to change the way the market works yeah, and this has been happening more and more, obviously, with with these huge contracts like Huberdos. So, so, but this answers a question, right? That the Calgary Flames are they made this deal with the the, the point of keeping uh, Huberdo, locking him up, much the way they would have liked to have locked up. Uh, Matthew Kachuk and Kachuk didn't want anything to do with that. Yeah. So this is good news for Calgary because I think they were feeling like Brad Treliving, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but he was saying that it felt like a real gut punch. Some yeah. of the things 
people were saying about Calgary and and what a place it was like to play and live and you know th- th- that whole scenario about Kachuk wanting to go and Johnny Gaudreau leaving for Columbus he said that was a real gut punch for the city yeah. and for the fans of Calgary so this is good news for Jonathan Huberto they're still down a forward in Calgary because they lost Gaudreau and they lost Kachuk so they've they brought Huberto in they've replaced Kachuk with one so that's something let's uh, talk about what's left on the market though Mike because although it's been a few weeks there's still a couple names out there in NHL free agency yeah there's some pretty interesting names uh, when you're thinking about um, you know adding that sort of the the depth player that some teams might be looking for and you know here's a guy who's 34 years old um, who clearly is a goal scorer has scored everywhere he's gone has had a bit of a reputation earned or unearned you decide but phil kessel is a name mm. that is out there and if a team is looking for you know a guy who's going to pick up some minutes maybe on your third or, se- or second or third line um and likely contribute 20 maybe 25 goals i mean this is the thing i've always said this in all my years of covering hockey somebody on every team has to score goals. That's, that's right. That's right. Right? Like a team is not going to get shut out every game. Somebody's got to be there to score the goal. So that one's pretty interesting. The other uh, one I find kind Mike, of... Mike, hold on one second. Don't forget Phil Kessel, also the current active Ironman streak leader in the NHL. Nobody has played more consecutive games right now than Phil Kessel. Which I bet you if you asked 100 hockey fans, I don't know if... I'm going to say 90... 8% of people are never, ever going to guess Phil they Kessel. They would never guess Because Phil of Kessel. that reputation yeah. of his, right? Um, but there there are other great uh, great names out there. And one that jumps to, to obviously to mind is, is Nazem Kadri. Yeah, now, yeah. Is he, is he really a free agent? Who knows? There's all this talk about <laughs> Lou Lamorello having already signed a bunch of these players, but enjoying keeping that information from people. And that he's going to, at some point, just release it all and say, okay, here's all our, here's all these guys. They're all New York Islanders. <laughs> and I managed to keep that secret from you this whole summer. I have to check them for beards all summer long before I can yes, formally course, announce yes. their, their signing. Exactly. We're, uh, we're making sure that their shaving kits are all uh, up to snuff. And for those um, who don't know, the joke there is that Lou Lamarillo does not allow his players to grow facial hair. Correct. Yeah. Longtime friend and business associate of George Steinbrenner. So <laughs> there maybe maybe that's where the tie-in comes. Um, but Nazem Kadri is uh, certainly another one. And I'm going to throw this one out there, Dave, just because when you're thinking about depth and you're thinking about experience and and the NHL, I don't know, there just seems to be a history of teams picking up what I like to call reclamation projects where they think – that this guy who's been around has had his day. Mm-hmm. We can still make him better. Yeah, it's he like can it's still like help our team. It's like women who so, date me. They say, "Oh, I can fix this guy." Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out PK Subban. Oh yeah, He's my boy. Available. And the longer the longer this summer goes, the more I think PK Subban is gonna find himself somewhere on a one year deal at low cash. And he's going to become kind of like the uh, the, the Jason Spezza type contract now, mm-hmm. where he's mm-hmm. year to year, or he has one good year, a decent year under a low number, and then manages to go and find himself maybe a two year contract next time around. But I feel that with every day that passes, it's I it's it's one day closer to PK Subban signing a one year deal somewhere, or potentially retiring. 
Yeah. That's, that's yeah. the word. So I I like the guy. I think that his days of being your your top defenseman are long gone, but could he be somebody's number five or six? I absolutely. Yeah, yeah. He was he he was okay last year in New Jersey as a second pairing defenseman. Uh, yeah. There were maybe a couple dirty uh, hits that he threw along the way, but that sometimes will happen as a defenseman gets older. I, I there is there there has to be a potential Stanley Cup contender that sees him as a one and a half or two million dollar player as a guy who's who's been there. He's been to one Stanley yep. Cup final. He's been to multiple Stanley Cup semifinals. He's a good hockey player, and he's been through a lot, and he uh, definitely brings some personality to a team. So I wonder if there's perhaps a younger Stanley Cup contending team that sees him as saying, maybe we need a little jolt, and maybe PK might be the guy to do that. Mike, we got to get out of here, but thank you for this. Thank you for doing the triple header with us in this segment. You're welcome. Have a great weekend. That is Mike Ross. If you want the sports conversation to continue, the Neutral Zone hits the airwaves today at 4 p.m. The crew is going to reflect on the 2022 Major League Baseball trade deadline and discuss some of the biggest moves around the league. I bet they're going to talk about my guy Juan Soto and the Slam Diego Padres. Plus, co-hosts Brock and Cameron will chat about the Toronto Argonauts and the state of the Canadian Football League. The Neutral Zone airs Fridays, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-audio. Grace Scofield airs right now at the AMI Weather Desk. Thanks, Dave. Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Starting off in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, where there's some showers with a risk of a thunder shower and a high of 24 degrees. In Charlottetown, it's sunny with some increasing cloudiness near noon and then 30% chance of showers this afternoon with a risk of a thunder shower and a high of 28 degrees. In St. John, a mix of sun and cloud with a 60% chance of drizzle early this morning and a high of 27 degrees. Over in Quebec City, it's mainly cloudy with a 30% chance of showers early this morning. That'll clear up near noon with a high of 25 degrees. In Toronto, it's cloudy, which will clear up this morning with a high of 28 degrees. In Sault Ste. Marie, it's sunny today with a high of 27 degrees. Over in Brandon, Manitoba, it's mainly cloudy with a 60% chance of showers this morning with a risk of a thunderstorm that'll clear up this afternoon with a high of 26 degrees. In Regina, it's sunny today, becoming a mix of sun and cloud this afternoon with a high of 22 degrees. In Lethbridge, Alberta, it's sunny today with a high of 23 degrees. In Red Deer, Alberta, it's mainly cloudy with periods of rain beginning early this morning, then ending this afternoon with a 30% chance of showers late this afternoon and a high of 17 degrees. In Whitehorse, it's cloudy this morning with a 70% chance of showers this afternoon and a high of 17 degrees. In Kelowna, BC, a mix of sun and cloud today, becoming sunny later this morning with a high of 23 degrees. I'm going to be on the radio in Kelowna this morning. Some friends of mine host a morning show there and they called me today to answer their question of the day. So for the sake of uh, radio, uh, radio ease. I'll tell you, we pre-recorded it before the sh- before our show started today. But they're asking the question: What do you miss about the days when you couldn't buy cannabis at a store and you had to go to a dealer? So they called the source. It's some nice weather to listen to Dave Brown on the radio in, in Kelowna. Kelowna. Yeah. <laughs> and last but not least, in Vancouver, BC, it's mainly sunny with a high of 22 degrees. 
And that was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Grace. Coming up after the break, Michael McNeely, our entertainment critic, will share a review of the HBO series Irma Vep. But first, General Motors is expanding some self-driving capacity. Here's Sherry Preston with Tech Trends. Super Cruise is a driver assistance technology that allows certain GM vehicles to steer themselves. So we geofence it, so to speak, to work only on the roads that we map. Jeff Miller is the assistant chief engineer. He says the tech has been around since 2017. And since then has only operated on divided highways. We are expanding beyond divided highways to include non-divided highways. He says the announcement marks a significant expansion. This will essentially bring us from our current 200,000 miles of Super Cruise capable roads. We're going to more than double that and we'll be up over 400,000 miles of Super Cruise capable roads. Super Cruise uses a steering wheel mounted camera to make sure the driver is keeping their eyes on the road. That means no texting. So you still need to be paying attention to the road and able to take control if the system hands control back to you. But it really does reduce a lot of the fatigue and the monotony of driving. With Tech Trends, I'm Sherry Preston, ABC News. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's a Friday edition of AMI at the movies. Before Michael McNeely joins us, we're taking a look into the world of prestige TV today with an HBO series called Irma Vep. Before we welcome Michael in, let's take a quick look and listen to a clip from the series. A young actress poses for photos. I'm so sick of being the superhero. But Blockbusters just let you make movies you love. An HBO original. I'll be Irma Vep. This is the part she's been dying to play. I told her not to get involved with those people. What else can I do? Starring Alicia Vikander. How's it been going? Are you happy? Mira, I'm never happy. Who would have thought that you would end up working with her? Renee's process can be confusing. Don't touch me. You're all pissing me off. The eccentric director grapples with an actor. You're a stranger in a strange town. You play tough, but you're so candid. I'm young. I'm a movie star. I like when they look at you. What matters is staying sane. Mira plays Irma in a chaotic production. So that's a clip from HBO's Irma Vep. So Michael McNeely, our entertainment critic, is here to offer up his insight on this series. Hey, good morning, Michael. Good morning. So, Michael, I'm well. Nice to chat with you. Give me a little bit of background here. Who is Irma Vep, and what does this series explore? So it's a bit of a complicated story, so bear with me. In 1915-1916, there was a serial, which we would consider now to be like a television series, although of course they didn't have TV back then. So it was more or less a, um, a series of movies, sometimes short movies, sometimes long movies. This series was called Le Vampire, which is French for vampire, but it was not a vampire story, it was just a crime keeper. It was the story about a gang called the Vampires and how they went around Paris causing trouble. So it was very successful. And because it was so successful, 
one of the characters gained some fame. Her name was Irma Fab, and she was one of the henchmen, or henchwomen rather, in the vampire's gang. So she got recognition, I think, because she is very attractive, and she showed at that time period that women could be action stars of some kind, that they could be just as important in a movie as men. So fast forward to 1996, um, Oliver Isaias made a film called Irma Fab, and the film was the story about a remake, you know, a fictional remake of The Vampires, the 1915-1916 series. And because the movie was called Irma Fab, we know that it's about the actor who's going to play Irma Fab in that fictional remake. And so that uh, actor who played Irma Fab turned out to be Maggie Shun, and it's the story about a fictional Maggie Shun and how she steps into the shoes of Irma Fab. So if you're still with me, I only have a bit longer to go. Essentially, that movie was remade now in 2022, also called Irma Fab. But instead of a fictional movie based on the vampires, we're doing a fictional series based on the vampires. Maggie Shun is no longer in the picture. She's been replaced by Mira, who's been played by Alicia Vikander. So the show is described as a series about the ghosts of cinema. Elaborate on that for me. What does that mean? Well, as you can tell from my long story, all this is based on a 1915 production. Um, I think the ghosts of cinema are essentially those characters or those films that stay with us for a long time, maybe because they're classics or maybe because they just resonated with us in some way. I think it's probably probably not a, an overstatement to say that because of Irma Fab, We've had many, many, many complex characters and portrayals played by women or feminine people that um, allow us to to keep going with that, to keep exploring what it means to be a woman or what it means to be feminine or what it means to be a sidekick or what it means to be involved in a criminal enterprise. It's, it's all because of Irma Fab that we've had more complex characters to this day. Another theme explored are labor rights and safety on sets. Why are those explored? Why is that the case? Well, let me ask you a question, Dave. Let's say it's 1916, and we need to do a scene where a bomb goes off in a cafe. How would you do that scene to, to, um, to I guess, to protect the extras? I have no idea. That is absolutely why I'm not a film director in 1916. How would you do that? You just blow it up. And you offer to pay the extras three times the salary. It's a true story. There's no uh, special effects. A bomb went off. Everybody knew that the bomb was going to go off. People took a chance. They believed that they would still be alive afterwards. If they got injured, they would just pay two times the extra weight. 
so why does that become uh, a key part of why the series is exploring that? Well, we've thankfully taken large strides towards safety and labor protections. But as we saw with the Alec Baldwin accidental shooting, um, we still have a long way to go. We still have a lot to do to protect protect the crew and the cast. Um, I think in this series, we really interact a lot with the cast and the crew of the film shoot. And I think that is really well done because essentially when we're making a movie or when we're making a series, we don't know that it's going to be a classic right then and there. And even if it turns out to be a classic, it doesn't mean that we can sacrifice the cast and the crew really nearly. It means we have to give some credence to the to their needs and to their expectations, especially working with insurance and working within the labor union. Let's talk about a couple of the actors involved. Alicia Vekinder plays the main character, Mira, like you mentioned. Were you drawn to her performance? Why or why not? I was very much drawn to her performance. Um, just like I mentioned, you know, she's working on a film set. She's working in a series. I'm, I'm, I think this is an opportunity for us to see what it is like to be a working actor, even though it might be a bit fictional. Um, and then she'll find her to place a character that has her own flaws, but is still very much a unique person, and her celebrity status does not overshadow those other aspects about her. So she was able to give us a performance that allowed us to get beyond the supposed celebrity that comes with being a film star. And we can start to judge this character's um, morality based on her actions. And I think when she starts interacting with the character of Irma Fab, Irma starts to live within her. That's more or less also why it's a ghost story in some regards. So the performance actually encapsulates all of that. And that is why I have one final note that um, we're probably not going to get a tomb raider with Alicia anymore because of the merger between uh, Warner Brothers and Discovery, if I'm not mistaken. But you can have some action with Alicia through this film and through probably some of her other films. So try not to be too disappointed. Let's talk about another actor, Vincent McCagney, who plays Rene Vidal, the director of the series within the series. Tell me a bit more about his performance. Well, as you may have noted from our introduction, when we showed you a bit of the series, he's the director that says, don't touch me. It pisses me off. Um, so he's very standoffish. He's very um, isolated. He is struggling with anxiety and other mental health issues, but he does a great job showing um, showing the nuances of what it means to be a director. Because as a director, you're in charge of the production. Everybody listens to you, and sometimes that's too much pressure to have. And so I think, I think this is a perfect example of a director who is overworked who is highly stressed and who has to struggle with the demons of his past. 
Now is a fun fact is that Olivia Assayas, the director of both the 1996 movie and the series, was married in real life to Maggie Schoon, and she basically divorced him in about 2001 or 2002. So there's a lot of ghosts in that relationship, especially when the movie is concerned. This series kind of kind of puts a bookend on that. Michael, you made me bear with you when you described this series. So bear with me as I pose this question, because I think it takes a couple twists and turns. Maggie Chung, or a fictional version of her, was going to play Irma Vep in the 1996 film. Asian representation was an issue then, and of course still is now, as we've discussed on the show. How did the series address that Irma Vrip was no longer being played by an Asian actor, but a Swedish-American one? I was a little bit disappointed, to be honest with you, because I didn't like Maggie Schoen's uh, interpretation of Irma Vrip and her interpretation of being an actor trying to play Irma Vrip, but they did explain it um, when they, the director says that he doesn't want to cast another Asian actor because it would remind him too much of his ex-wife. And so that is kind of an interesting uh, plot twist. It is probably true for a lot of directors who may decide to discriminate against one race or one ethnicity because it reminds them too much of the past. Um, it's not something that we approve of. It's just the reality of the story. And there are several um, there are several Asian actors in the story that do have permanent characterizations. So um, Alicia Vikander's character, Mira, asks a few times if it's okay for her to play what used to be played by an Asian person. And she's told... It doesn't really matter because you just need to embody the character. I know that's maybe a simplified answer for some of the issues that we've looked at in the past few years about representation. But perhaps we can think of Irma Fab as a spirit, not necessarily tied to a specific race. Do you recommend the series? Why or why not? I think I do recommend the series. I think I've spoken at length about how complicated it is today. And it's it's amazing that we can still talk about something that was around in 1915-1916, something that involved blowing up a cafe because they didn't have any special effects. Um, I think Irma Fab is with us to stay. And it's important that we think about the issues of representation neighbor rights, and what it means to make a movie or a series now, as opposed to 1915. So I I do think that this series is probably a great, uh, great summary of all the issues that we've been dealing with as, as filmmakers and film watchers. Michael, thank you for this. Thank you for your insight on this series. Thank you. And Dave, try not to blow any people up to your... <laughs> to a lack of safety precautions. That's my uh, mantra every day, and that's why they don't let me play with matches around the studio. That was entertainment critic Michael McNeely with a review of the new HBO series Irma Vep. Uh, because it's HBO, that makes me think that you can find it on Crave in Canada. Coming up next, we'll catch up with Grace and Nazreen and see what's cracking. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's bring in Grace Scofield and find out what's going on in the world of entertainment. Grace, following up on a story from earlier in the week, there's lots of tumult around Warner Brothers and the DC Comics uh, movie franchisees. Absolutely. DC has released plans for their company that will allow them to attempt, no emphasis on attempt, to emulate (laughs) the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Ah, yeah, there we go. So the company's even hired former Disney film chief Alan Horn as an advisor for the DC films. And Alan Horn worked very closely with Kevin Feige to develop Marvel's current content strategy. Um, And that is what built it into the cinematic universe it is now. So they're taking all the right steps. But from what I can see so far, the execution of it is going to be a little little off a little weird yeah it's it's a mess it it goes it goes back to what we talked about earlier in the week it's a mess they're perpetually chasing their tail we need to be more whimsical we need to be more serious we need to be more inclusive we need to be less inclusive let's have batgirl no cancel batgirl let's uh you know they they just they just don't seem to know what they're doing they can't pick a lane and yeah they they just can't do it so ceo david zaslav said that all of their upcoming projects are being picked through with a fine-tooth comb to make them the best films they can be. Okay. So he also alluded to the fact that these films' release dates could be pushed until they're the best quality film they can be. So they're waiting to release more films after canceling films, and they're only going to be releasing things theatrically. So this has caused some trouble because the company in 2018 revealed plans to make um, more digital releases through mm-hmm, HBO Max mm-hmm. and to shift their content strategy that way. Hiring executive Walter Hamada, who's been planning HBO Max's films to fit the company's needs and wants, he wants to step down. He was very close to stepping down after they canceled Batgirl because he saw what they were doing and where their content was going and that his plan was essentially being thrown out the window for mm-hmm, all of these movies. Mm-hmm. Quality is DC's new focus now. I mean, that should have been the focus all along. That's so. This emphasis on quality is really kind of. Uh, we want really to make weird. quality programming. We want what to be you, good. What were you feeding me before? <laughs> what were you the subpar? Were you not happy with it because nobody else was either? So glad we're all on the same page there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so one follow up thought here, Grace. Yeah. It was announced uh, earlier this week they're going to be making a sequel to the Joker movie with Joaquin Phoenix, and it looks like Lady Gaga. Lady yes. Gaga is going to be uh, brought in as one of the uh, one of the supporting characters in that. You see, this is the opposite of making your movies like the Marvel Cinematic Universe because what made Joker so good is that it was so gritty and dark. Sorry, I don't know if you've seen it yet, so I don't want to give any spoilers. I haven't seen it yet. Ooh. I, yes. Uh, DC Universe, not really my jam apart from Superman stuff because my dad's a big Superman okay. fan. Okay. And the whole Batman versus Superman movie really just threw us both off mm-hmm. and we haven't gone back since. I don't know if you like dark, depressing movies, but the Joker was definitely that. Okay. Okay. I can give it a try. I'm much more of like a Mary Poppins kind okay. of person. Yeah, there you go. Um, but not you know, that. Can... Definitely not that. It's, <laughs> it's, it's not quite Mary Poppins or Hallmark <laughs> holiday movies. But is this new Joker movie a musical? Did they actually confirm that? Oh, is that, is that, is that in that, play? That was. There was some speculation oh, that it might be a musical. Oh, and with Lady on. Gaga being confirmed, we got to say it, Gaga now. That's, the, yeah. that's now, the one. Now, I do like myself some Lady Gaga. I think yes. she's very talented. Yes. But uh, I don't know. Like, like We had this great serious movie. Uh, make it a musical. Let's that's make what it a people- musical. Like, and this goes back to the idea. You can't chase your tail on content. You just have to make good content. That's exactly it. So now they're trying to focus on quality, but I don't see that as happening. 
Because they're still taking all the same movies they were making before, just releasing them later. Yeah. I don't know how much better you can make these movies. Okay, well, we're the, and it should also be noted that this is all under the context of Discovery buying uh, HBO Max and Warner Brothers, and there were a bunch of people laid off yesterday yes. because fifty-seven billion dollars was taken on in the acquisition of the company. Maybe we shouldn't be letting companies acquire sixty billion dollars in debt to buy other companies and then having a bunch of employees fired. Maybe some kind idea. of regulatory body should stop that from happening. <laughs> Grace, we got to get out of here, but thank you. No problem. Uh, that was Grace with Entertainment Report and Dave bringing an extra business story into the mix. Let's bring in Nizreen Abdelmajid to find out what's going on in the world of social media with a segment we call What's Trending. Hey, Nizreen. What's Trending? <laughs> hey, uh, I couldn't get over the Lady Gaga. Lady moment, Gaga. But <laughs> now this is, that's what Just I'm like my favorite singer, Beyonce. I love it. I love it. Um, if I need a creative name for DJ Nazi, I'll come to you right away. DJ Nazi. Okay. There you go. I like it. It's it rings. easy. It rings. It's easy. Simple. <laughs> so for today, it's International Beer Day, and I oh. know you. I know you know that I don't drink, but I know the A my family <laughs> drinks. <laughs> You're like Dave. You know I don't drink, but Dave, I know yeah. you like yourself some beers. I know you like it. I know the whole A my family likes it. So. Let's bring on uh, Grace, and if Ramya's on the phone, no, no Ramya, no Ramya today. Okay, so let's bring on Grace. Are you the type of person that uh, likes to drink beer at home, or are you more of a pub person? <laughs> this is a very intimate question, Grace. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Uh, All of the above. That's very good. I yes. <laughs> both. Base- baseball games, pubs, baseball home? games, pubs. Absolutely. Uh, good Stella at a Blue Jays game mm. is like oh, peak summer it's moment like the $15 for me. Fifteen dollar beer. Yeah, right yeah. There. That's why you do one, and that's the end of that. <laughs> then you get the dugout deals, and yeah. you're like, "Hey, I, I'm good for the rest of the night." Um, but I think like going out to pubs is always a fun thing, especially in Toronto. Going to Trinity Bellwoods and trying a terrible craft beer at a oh, nice yeah. bar. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's always a good experience. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I like a good beer out, but also at home. It depends on the situation. Grace, we're <laughs> yeah. Grace and Zreen, We're a little tight for time here, but Grace, I'm gonna ask you a follow up here and i've got an answer to this one as well okay can bottle or from the tap oh ooh, i think bottle i also lean bottle it depends yeah. it depends on the it depends on the beer in question but i yes. think i also go glass bottle yeah i if like i it, did I like, like it i would go for a glass bottle too okay all right we have <laughs> unanimity heading into the weekend nazreen sorry we gave you the squeeze here but thank you for bringing this topic that lights me up it gets me all hopped up so to speak Happy Friday. Happy Friday, indeed. Uh, no Ramya today, as I mentioned, but Kelly and company still coming your way this afternoon at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. You'll hear from John Beeler. He's of the App Show fame. And it's Ryan Huey Friday. That means it's the chatty bookshelf. I'm really disappointed Ramya's not here because I wanted to tell her another dad joke that she was horrified that I was telling her yesterday. How about this one? I don't trust stairs. They're always up to something. Coming up after the break, Greg David will be here with the scoop on a couple of American TV shows coming your way this fall. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's get the scoop on what's going on around the world of television with Greg David. Greg is an AMI communications specialist and joins us from beautiful 
Chelsea, Quebec. Hey, good morning, Greg. Good morning, Dave. How are you doing? I am doing really well. Greg, I believe it's the time of the season when the Casino Lac Limi starts to do their uh, fireworks show. Can you see that from Chelsea or are you too far away? Oh, you know what? That explains why we heard some fireworks not too long ago. So we're far enough away that we don't see them. But if that's what I heard um, last weekend, then that's definitely what it was. So now I know. Yeah, one of the neat highlights of the National Capital Region is indeed uh, all the fireworks show you get all summer long and the pets do not like it. Greg, let's uh, jump into the world of AMI-tv first, because a lot of folks who are familiar with the network have really enjoyed the show Level Playing Field. Well, now there's a companion piece dropping on AMI-tv and AMI.ca beyond the field. So give me the scoop on the show. Yeah, like you said, it's the companion piece to Level Playing Field. And whereas Level Playing Field shines a light on athletes on the field or during competition and talks to them about it and really introduces some of those sports, Beyond the Field sits down off the court off the gridiron uh, to examine important issues impacting the world of sport, but specifically parasport. We've got a couple Paralympians who are, again, very familiar to viewers of this show, Greg and Travis. But give me the uh, the, the sketch of, of, of these two gentlemen, these two hosts who are uh, taking part of these conversations. Sure, absolutely. Like you said, both Canadian Paralympians. Greg Westlake is a decorated para-ice hockey player who's helped Canada win the silver medal at the Pyeongchang Paralympic Games in 2018. He's been a para-ice hockey player since 2001. And Travis Morau is a wheelchair rugby player who most recently competed as a member of Team Canada at the Tokyo Paralympic Games. They're both obviously well-suited to discuss the issues on Beyond the Field. You mentioned in this case we're looking at issues that are sort of beyond just the field of play. Again, that's right Mm -hmm. in the name. Well done, Dave. Um, What are some of the topics that are going to be explored? Yeah, we like to be a little bit dead on with our our show titles. (laughs) Sometimes. So some of the topics that are covered in the second season of Beyond the Field include Paralympic funding in Canada versus Olympic funding, which is huge. I I, I think a lot of people that's I know. Yeah, I know that 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 was discussed during the the latest Paralympic Games. So they'll be going in depth in that episode. They also are going to be covering training and competing during a global pandemic and some of the myths and misconceptions of making it to the Paralympic Games. So some really uh, interesting behind-the-scenes conversations that the boys are going to be having with other uh, Paralympians and 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 para-athletes. So we've set up what it is, where and when can folks catch beyond the field? Yeah, season two of Beyond the Field kicks off this coming Monday, August the 8th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on AMI-tv, right after a brand new episode of AMI this week. And of course, if you miss it on Monday, uh, you can always stream past seasons and past episodes of Beyond the Field on AMI.ca and the AMI-tv app. Greg, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about some Canadian shows that are going to be hitting the airwaves in the fall. Today, let's talk about a couple of American shows that are going to be impacting programming in a couple of weeks. We've got about one minute for each one. So let's start with a reboot, Quantum Leap on NBC. Yeah, so this is a continuation of the late 1980s series of the same name, which saw a man named Sam Beckett jumping into the bodies of different people in different periods of time. It was a cult hit, and really, I'm, you know, with all of the reboots of shows coming along, I wasn't surprised that 30 years later we were going to be revisiting this show. I'm excited about this version because it's really a continuation of that original story. We're going to follow a guy named Dr. Ben Song, played by Raymond Lee, as he chimes 
time, time travels from today to the past, and a team of scientists are trying to bring, bring him back to 2022. And Dave, I love series like this uh, that explore other periods in time, uh, so I think Quantum Leap is going to be really fun. Um, I, I love it when you get into like behind the, like the you know historical storylines, but also mm. like the music of the time and the wardrobe and that type of thing. Um, and there was NBC canceled a previous time travel series called Timeless a few years ago, and this is going to fill that hole in my life. Thankfully, Quantum <laughs> Leap makes its first leap Monday, September the nineteenth. For about a decade, there was no better actor walking the planet than Hilary Swank. Well, she's yeah. coming back with a small screen show here, Alaska Daily on ABC. Yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued by this one because, uh, like you said about Hilary Swank, she's a wonderful actress, so I'm already on board. She's playing a character named Eileen Fitzgerald. She's a recently disgraced reporter who leaves her high-profile job in New York to join a daily metro newspaper in Anchorage, Alaska. And there really is a newspaper called the Ala- Alaska Daily News, I think is what it's called. And in this show, she's going to be on a journey to to find both personal and professional redemption. Now, personal and professional redemption sounds a little bit hackneyed and corny, but I'm still willing to give this a chance just because Hilary Swank is leading it. She's also an executive producer on this, and I really like those small-town stories, so I'll be tuning in on Thursday, October the 6th on ABC to check out Alaska Daily. Yeah, the fish-out-of-water model always yeah. makes for some interesting TV. Let's uh, go from the practical to the world of the supernaturals, the spookies and the demons and the ghosts and the Ghoulies, the Winchester family, the Winchesters on CW. What's this all about? Yeah, I was a huge fan of Supernatural, which told the story of Sam and Dean Winchester as they picked up the wooden stakes from their parents and hunted monsters. Uh, I'm excited about the Winchesters, which kicks off Thursday, October the 10th on the CW, because it's actually a prequel series that tells the story of how Sam and Dean's parents, John and Mary, kicked off this whole thing, this whole world. It's set just after the Vietnam War, and it promises not only to be entertaining with the monsters that they're fighting, but it's also likely to have a killer soundtrack. And I love a great soundtrack that fits with the time period that a show is set in. <laughs> so while we're in the world of spinoffs, so far of uh, the four that we've talked about, three are either reboots or uh, spinoffs of existing intellectual property. Well, yep. The Rookie, starring Canadian Nathan Fillion, has been a big hit. So let's make a spinoff. Rookie feds. What's going on with this one on ABC? Yeah, like you just said, networks are loathe the gamble on very many brand new series. Why would they do that? Why would they just feed us the same pablum? Exactly, especially when it does well in the ratings. So The Rookie Feds stars Niecy Nash as Simone Clark, and she becomes the oldest trainee to ever attend the FBI uh, Academy. And this mirrors Nathan Fillion's character because in The Rookie, he was the oldest rookie cop ever to join the LAPD. The executive producers of the Rookie Feds promise that the same drama and humor as the Rookie is going to be in place for this one, as well as an international flavor, because the FBI travel not only all over the U.S., but also outside the country. So I'm interested in seeing some of those international stories when the Rookie Feds kicks off Sunday, September the 25th on ABC. Ooh, going outside the jurisdiction. Controversial. Uh, Greg, you got one minute to tell me all about the prequel to the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power. 
The Rings of Power. Uh, well, it kicks off September the 2nd on Amazon Prime. It's a prequel to The Lord of the Rings. It's going to bring to the screens the, for the very first time the heroic legends of the fabled Second Age of Middle-Earth's history. If you're a fan of The Lord of the Rings, you know what I said, and if you don't, you just heard words. <laughs> it's set thousands of years before the events of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, and it's going to follow an ensemble cast of characters as they confront the long-feared reemergence of evil to Middle-Earth. Obviously, all joking aside, this is going to be a huge hit because there's already built an audience that's champing at the bit for more Lord of the Rings in their life. And and uh, and also Game of Thrones fans are going to be intrigued by this as well. So, yeah, Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power, September on Amazon Prime. Greg, 15, 20 seconds before we got to say goodbye. But are you at least a little disheartened that five of six of these shows are all just spinoffs or, re- or rehashes of, of IP? Yeah, absolutely I am. And that's, you know, that's the reality of conventional television in prime time. No one is willing to make that gamble. It's just too expensive, so they stick with, uh, you know, rehashes. Uh, you know, we've talked about this before, Dave. The Netflixes, the Disney Pluses, uh, all uh, Paramount Pluses, all the streaming services are where all the creatives are going. They're willing to gamble with people's money. So, uh, yeah, I am disappointed for sure. Greg, we got to go. Talk to you guys on Monday. Host, Dave Brown. News director, Mike Ross. Social media reporter, Nisreen Abdel-Majid. Sports reporter, Jeff Ryman. Audio technical producer and entertainment reporter, Daniel Penamondo. Descriptions by AMI's media accessibility team. TV technical producer, Bruce McLarian. Live production switcher, Sebastian McKenzie. Senior show producer, Andrika Delanarol. Producers, Paul Daniel and Marianne Dion-Jones. Audio Technical Supervisor, Paula Deneen. Operations Specialist, Kyle Harper. Manager of AMI-Audio, Andy Frank. Director of TV Production, Kara Nye. Vice President, Programming and Production, John Melville. President and CEO, David Arrington. Give us your feedback at 1-866-509-4545. Copyright 2022, Accessible Media, Inc. An AMI original production. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.